you don't need stuff to be happy or you don't need all these things. It's spending time with each other, you know, trying to teach what Christmas really means or birthdays at a really early age to drive the point home of kind of what life is really all about. Time is absolutely the most valuable thing you have. And if you want to be able to spend more time with your children or the people you love, you know, whatever context that may be, not that money can buy you things, but it can help buy you time. And that's what I really want. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 214. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world, man? You have a good Thanksgiving? I did, yeah. What about you? Yeah, it was a great was time, brisket? man. Brisket was amazing, dude. As always, I love that you stuff. Say, did you save some for us? Hey, we had you having brisket on Thanksgiving reminds me of we have an interview coming up with someone who did barbecue competitions, right? That was kind of the side hustle. Yeah, that's right. We Cooking do. We do have some. And so it's a thing here in, so in, in how the about South. That? Passive income selling brisket. Yeah, that is. That's true. Well, I don't know how passive it is, right? He's a pit master, but yeah. <laughs> It's it's for the love of the game, right? The love of the game of the pitmaster. But yeah, no, he he did. He won some money in some competitions. It's exciting. But yeah, Thanksgiving was good. Brisket was good. And man, we're it's crazy. You know, you get into these holidays, and man, we're already here. It's you know, it'll be December before we know it, and Christmas, and then it's the new year, and starting to think about things for the next year, right? Goals, and you got open enrollment going on, or maybe he's has taken place for most people by now. But one thing that we've been discussing lately, or I think just in a lot of circles is just the health plans and different options and, you know, high deductible versus low deductible. And what are all those different buckets and how much are you really paying your premiums for what kind of care, et cetera, et cetera, as you know, we're sitting in this high inflationary environment. So Clark, what, what, what's your take? What's, what can people do? What's the advice that, that, uh, you've been giving out to people as it relates to health insurance. Yeah. So my sister and brother-in-law just started their, their first job. And so she reached out, shout out to her, although she's probably not, she doesn't ever listen to this, I don't think, but we'll see now that I said that. Anyway, she reached out asking about health insurance and she was given, you know, obviously gratefully, she was given a few different options, four or five different options on healthcare. And they each had a different deductible. They each had a different out-of-pocket max. Obviously they different had rates and different rules for in-network versus out-of-network. And her her question was, hey, what should I get, right? Should I get a really high deductible health plan? High meaning for her plans was one option was ten thousand and one was twelve for out of pocket max. I think the deductible was six or seven thousand for each. So her question was, hey, should I risk it? You know, if we're in a year where we don't think we're going to have kids and we're relatively healthy, is it worth getting the high deductible health plan, or should I get a little bit nicer insurance? And so just trying to balance that and. I think it's interesting. I mean, my approach is if you're healthy and and it's early on in your career and you don't think you're going to have a big life event, I mean, obviously you could have an accident, but if you can get by on a high deductible plan, at least initially, or maybe always you can if you have enough in savings and then you can take some of that money and and contribute to your HSA, it's really a good way to go to build up your HSA balance and then hopefully you don't have any accident. But if you're able to have enough cash on the side, do a high deductible health plan. She was saving about, I think it was going to be about $1,800 a year that she'd be saving um, with about a 6,000 deductible. So just interesting to think about and and obviously grateful to even have the options because I think in some situations you may not even be offered health insurance or you may only have just one or two options. But 
Yeah, just something to think about here around open enrollment and obviously open enrollments, different time periods kind of, it's not always on the calendar year, at least it's not at my company, but something to be mindful of is to assess your different options. And sometimes the dental and vision makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, you make a good point there. You know, I, I've, I've carried dental insurance at different time periods in my life, but right now I don't, I just pay cash and man, my dentist, he, he loves the cash pay. Um, you know, I get quite a discount by paying cash. In fact, it's a lot cheaper than, than paying the dental insurance, but interesting. Yeah. I I mean, it all depends on what kind of dentist you go to and what kind of practice they have and whether they focus on different insurances or whether, you know, in, in his case, and I also just have some routine cleanings and stuff, you know, I essentially, right. Insurance is just all about the transfer of risk. Right. And so, I take the risk that, you know, I'm not going to have a, a bunch of dental work that's going to cost a lot of money that insurance would kick in and potentially cover. And I just take the risk. I'm gonna, and if that were to happen, I'd c- cover it out of pocket. Whereas, you know, other, other things, whether it's an umbrella policy on your, on your, uh, yourself and your net worth, or if it's a homeowner's or for rental or whatever it might be. I mean, it's just, you, you gotta, and maybe we'll do an episode where we discuss this a little bit more with some millionaires, but, you know, insurances are important, but it's just, it's under, it's important to understand that it's just a transfer of risk and how to assess that risk. Last week's episode, we had James. He works in IT at net worth just over a million dollars spread across retirement accounts, brokerage, and some home equity and a little bit in cash. This week, we have Hannah. She's a net worth of over $725,000 split amongst a few different buckets. She's married and has two kids and uh, super excited to have her on the show. Once again, we profile a few of these from time to time that are not quite there, but well on their way, well on their journey. And Hannah is one of them. Super excited to, to listen to her advice and the things that she's discussed related to how she grew up and, and what she's doing on her journey with her family. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Hannah. Hannah, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. So my background, um, grew up in the Midwest, uh, pretty typical upbringing, um, I think what really started everything, my dad was very involved in our lives and from a financial aspect. So he definitely got us started early with, you know, how to view finances and how to make the most of it. After moved away from the Midwest, just loved the area, but didn't want to be there long term, moved more to the mountains. And that's where I kind of began my career really early working for a company where I did sales. And I, I joke because my dad always said I could do anything in life except for sales. So, of course, that was the first job that I ever took. And I think he had the <laughs> more the old school mentality of what a salesperson is. And so kind of helped prove him that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Uh, and I've kind of built my career around there. Been married for almost 10 years, have a couple little girls now. So definitely staying busy with life. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, yeah, right now it's just over 725000 Nice. And how is that broken up? Yeah, so primarily broken up into investment accounts. So my husband and I both have 401ks. We both have Roth IRAs. Um, I have a little bit of company stock from a, a former employer. We have a outside brokerage account, uh, money market where we keep kind of our our more of our savings, and then some 529s for both of our girls. And then on the real estate side, we have one condo that we rent out and our primary home. Awesome. So you kind of got, got all sorts of stuff going on. So the the money that you have in in retirement accounts is that in index funds, bonds, stocks? What's the the, the makeup there? Yeah. So it's primarily in index funds. Uh, I figure I'm young enough that I still have quite the runway to go, and so want to be 
a little more aggressive in in my stock portfolio. So it's really all the uh, Bandex total stock funds. A couple of the accounts are in, you know, Fidelity or Schwab. So it's in the equivalent to those. And then same with the 529s, we have them invested as aggressively as we can. And then I figure I can change that allocation over time as I get, you know, maybe closer to retirement age. And that's across all of your investments, 529s, everything same? Yep. All of it is is index funds and all stock. And has it always been like that? Not always. I would say when I first started investing from, you know, getting a job, it was put money in your 401k, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And so I just put it in timed investment allocations. You know, I'm going to retire in 2055. Uh, as I gained a little more knowledge and looked into that, I saw 10 to 15% of that was held in cash. 20% could be in bonds. And so it just, for me, wasn't as aggressive as I wanted it to be as young as I was. And so I changed those to the just pure stock investment on the index fund side, not individual stocks. When you made that change, was that something that, that your husband and you discussed? Or did you just say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I think is, is, is the best route to go. Uh, yeah, it was more, this is what I think we should do. And this is the best route to go. Uh, he isn't as involved in this. Um, he always says he trusts me. We've been married long enough that he doesn't need to be as involved unless I want him to. So I more try to tell him what I'm doing. And then he says, sounds great. And then I just kind of take care of it and manage it. Interesting. And for, for the foreseeable future, you're going to keep this, this allocation going forward. Yeah. In terms of the, the 529s, how do you think about those and, and their longevity? Are you planning for your, your children to go to college? Is it something that you're going to contribute to every year? Or is there some point you might stop? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that my husband and I have talked about because we aren't sure and almost hopeful that college will look a little differently by the time they're that age. You know, we have 15 to 18 years to go for them to get into college. And so we definitely have 529s, but we don't, I would say, aggressively invest in it. It's a small amount that we put in each month. Um, and that's more because we want some in there for higher education, but the other investment accounts might offer a little bit more flexibility if they don't choose to go the traditional college, you know, slash university route. And so we've debated on, do we build it to a certain point and then stop? Or when are we comfortable with that? Um, because I'm hopeful that paying for college will look a little differently or what they will need to do to gain that type of higher education will look differently. Yeah. Any plans for uh, HSA? Um, yeah. So we didn't have an HSA prior to this because with having children, the high deductible plans just didn't really make as much sense to us because we knew we'd be going to the doctor frequently or I had medical bills having children. I didn't want to pay that out of pocket from what the high deductible plan would be. Um, so at my company, I have myself and the girls on a plan and then my husband is on a high deductible plan at his. So we're able to max out the individual HSA plan starting this year. Good for you. And congrats on the success. It's awesome because we were talking a little bit about before the show, most of this has happened in the last few years. Yeah, right? it has. So where, I guess, how much of it has happened in the last few years? Because that's a 725-ish. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. So I would say from an investment account, we got pretty aggressive the last couple years and almost 150 to 200 of it is probably from the last couple years. 
um, a little bit of, you know, obviously some growth from putting it in the market and then just our more intense savings rate and trying to make the most of our money. I would say we used to invest or we used to save a lot. We just always held it in cash because we didn't really know what to do with it. So Mm -hmm. started educating myself a little more and investing it there. And then the condo is uh, used to be a primary residence. And then we started renting it out about four years ago and it's appreciated. And we've been able to build that or take that mortgage down with extra payments. Oh, interesting. So that is a property you lived in, kept it and then moved in somewhere else. Yep, it was. Uh, We decided we wanted to move out of the Midwest. And so that's when we we thought maybe we'll try to rent it because we had some friends that did. And it was actually fairly easy to rent. It's right next to a university. And so that helps keep rent pretty stable. And it's a little bit Mm -hmm. more of a higher end property. So it's typically been rented to professors instead of college students, which for us, we really like because it's less maintenance. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you had to have been doing some of it along the way because you got about 125,000 in your 401k. You got all, close to 100,000, about 94ish in your Roths. So you must have you were you maxing those out along the way? Um, we were not always maxing out the 401k. I primarily just, you know, did the company match and then let it go from there. I had the, you know, increase 1% every year. Um, but didn't take full advantage of it as I should. The Ross we have been maxing out for maybe three or four years. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. So let me just go back. Jace touched on it a little bit, but let me go back here. And we talked obviously a little bit before the show about you managing the finance. And one of the messages you wanted to share is that the woman can do that in a relationship, right? It doesn't always have to be the man. And I mentioned an episode that we have, I believe it was episode 94, which was a really good episode, one that I liked with a lady named Erica. And I just, I think your message message resonates with people. And so I'm just curious to get your, your feedback on that topic. Yeah. So I just think it can seem more intimidating or it's, you know, I've gone to investment meetings or met with financial advisors I didn't end up using. And it always struck me as how much they would face my husband or ask my husband. And then he would always look at me and then I would give the answer. And so it just really, to me, drove a lot of maybe old school mentality and how it can be viewed. And it's not as complicated as I think it's made out to be. Um, A lot of financial advisors want to sell you something. And so they try to make it really complicated. And there's absolutely wonderful financial advisors out there. So that's not a generality of the industry as a whole. But I think it doesn't have to be as complicated as people think. And just really educating yourself and meeting with other people, discussing it. Uh, I think being open to talking about money is should not be as taboo as it has always been in the past or that it can feel like it should be. Um, and so that's always been my stance on it is just educate yourself so you can have those intelligent conversations. It's not as complicated as a lot of people think it needs to be um, and really own it and, and show that you know, you're taking control just as much as anybody else can. It's really similar to the profession I'm in in sales. I get the similar vibe. And so I think that's what's driven a lot of it home. Yeah, well, good for you. And you've obviously done amazingly well doing it. So congrats on the success. So let's shift here to your story a little bit. We talked about allocation. Now let's go to your story. And you really grew up learning a little bit about this stuff, right? And your father, at least from a young age, I think you mentioned you opened your first bank account when you were seven how I mean, tell us a little bit about your childhood and maybe how some of that has influenced you, at least the teachings or what you learned to where you are now. And, and just give us a little background about who Hannah is. 
Yeah. So grew up in the Midwest, pretty stereotypical upbringing. Um, but my dad was always uh, very, he wanted to educate us about money and finances. He owned his own business. So I'm sure that was a big part of it. But I do, I remember being six or seven and I had to save $5.25 to open my first savings account. And it's like one of the most vivid memories from when I was a child is opening that account and how excited I was. Um, and I don't think he didn't teach money in that it felt like this big money lesson. It was just how we were brought up and it felt very natural. But for savings, you know, if I put in $2, he put in $2. And if I took $5 out, he took $5 out. So it really drove the difference between like a checking account and a savings account and how those should be viewed and used. And so a lot of that was super important. He also, um, I got my first credit card at 15 and he said, it has a hundred dollar limit. You can't ruin yourself with a hundred dollars. So if you can learn how to use this, then you get to keep it. And if you don't, I, you know, we'll, we can bail you out of a hundred dollars and then you just won't have one anymore. So I think the biggest <laughs> way that he taught is it didn't feel like he was teaching me something. It just felt like this is how you become an adult and this is what you need to do to manage money. I also started working when I was about 12, uh, had a lot of really strange jobs. I cleaned office buildings. Um, I actually ended up being the head cook at a restaurant when I was 14 because the actual head cook quit. It was like a bar and grill in our local town. And so they're like, you can do it. You've been doing this for six months. So just, you know, always had that hard work ethic mentality and him teaching me just, this is how life is not, Hey, I'm teaching you this big money lesson, um, made it not feel intimidating or scary to, to take that into then when I started my own professional career. Yeah. That's interesting. How long did your dad continue to match the money? How many years Um, did he do that for? Till I was a senior in high school. And did you know that's how long it was going to be? Like, was that something? Because my dad did the same. That's just why I'm curious and asking about it. Did you know it was like, hey, I got this gig until I'm 18. And after that, it's no longer? Or was it just kind of year by year? It was just kind of year by year. I'm sure, you know, he wanted to look at it like, okay, if she's working all this time, how much is she really going to put in there? Because eventually I'm not going to be able to match it. But so I was fortunate enough to graduate college without any debt. Um, And my dad always said, like, your job is school. And if you do well in school and you get good grades so you can get a good career, then we'll help you out. Um, so I think I always worked hard on the educational front and then he helped with that money. Um, and then when I went to college, it was just more on my own, but he'd helped me build up that nest egg. If you wouldn't have done well in college, would he have paid for it anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I never got to that point. So I don't know, but I it wouldn't put it wouldn't put it past me if he said like, all right, this semester, you're going to have to help figure this out, or you're going to have to pay us back. Um, I don't think he would have said, hey, you got a month to try to figure out how to pay for college. But I wasn't about to test if he wasn't going to pay for it, like what would happen. So Hannah, as you're going through this journey, what is maybe one or two things that you could pinpoint from from your early years, or maybe even your marriage, that have kind of brought the focus for you to to get to where you are and and maybe where you're headed in the future? Yeah. So I think I was blessed to have, again, early education on knowing how to handle money or how to look at it, how it, you know, is really just a tool to help me live the life that I want to live. And then what really drove things home from a savings perspective was when I had my children. 
time is absolutely the most valuable thing you have. And if you want to be able to spend more time with your children or the people you love, you know, whatever context that may be, not that money can buy you things, but it can help buy you time. And that's what I really want. And so that's when it really drove home was when I had my children. Yeah, totally. What are you doing to instill, you know, the same values or the same lessons that you maybe you learned growing up into them? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that I think about a lot. They're a little too young, I think, to drive full lessons home yet. But I think for me, the biggest thing is just showing them you don't need stuff to be happy or you don't need all these things. It's spending time with each other, you know, trying to teach what Christmas really means or birthdays at a really early age to to drive the point home of kind of what life is really all about. Um, I would love to be able to do the matching program for them from a savings account to help them with that. Um, but I think also a big part of it will just be communication, explaining to them like what a mortgage is and what bills are and how maybe you need to make a choice for one thing over the other. I would love to do it the same way my dad did and that it's not these, you know, hard lessons and it feels like this pressure or something that you, you know, really need to pay attention to. It's more just how you live your life and really showing them by example. Is there something that that you wish you would have learned earlier or something that you wish would have hit home, you know, to, to you personally earlier? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I wish I would have taken more time to learn about was I always had a great savings mentality, but I never knew what to do with it. So we would save and save and have money in a you know, savings account, not even a high yield savings account. And it was just sitting there. And I didn't max out my 401ks. I didn't open a brokerage account until the last couple of years. So I wasn't taking advantage of letting my money work for me. I was just saving it really for nothing. I didn't have a purpose for saving it. I just knew that's what I needed to do. So I wish I could have taken advantage of, you know, the early 20s and all the compound interest that would have happened over the last 10 years that I uh, unfortunately didn't as much take advantage of as I wish I would have. So I wish I would have learned that how to save and then what to do with that money once you do save it. Okay, let's take a quick break from the interview and thank Public for sponsoring this week's interview. So Jace, I use Fidelity primarily or nearly all of my investments are in Fidelity. What do you use? You're a little bit more all over the board, right? Yeah, we have Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, TD Ameritrade. I use a bunch of different ones. Just It just kind of depends. You know, I got my HSA with one. I've got my Roth with another, my wife's Roth with another. The list, it gets complicated, man. Yeah, so lots of different options here, right? If you're going to start buying uh, in the markets or especially now with cryptocurrency, lots of different options. So on public.com, you can start small with slices of shares. I've bought some crypto there. When you invest on public.com, you're never investing alone. Public is a little bit like Reddit and Robinhood and Twitter all together. So it's an easy investment platform, but there's a community and you can kind of share your trade or see what other people are doing and talk about things. So start investing with public as little as $1 and get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com today. Visit public.com slash unveiled to download the app and sign up. Again, that's public dot com slash unveiled. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and older, subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. And of course, this is not investment advice. So thanks again to Public for sponsoring this week's episode. So where do you go from here? Are you trying to get to a, a target net worth or passive income? And, and maybe, you know, with that, do you have any plans for, for early retirement? And if so, at what age? 
Yeah. So that's really another part that sparked the the more fire movement. Um, when I had the girls, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I spend more time with them? Um, cause I do, I do enjoy working. So it's not so much the retire early. It's the getting to, um, you know, I'd love to get to the 25 times net worth to be able or times my expenses net worth to be able to be financially independent, as you would say, so I can just make the choices that I want. I do love my job right now. I really enjoy it, but I might not in five years. So I would love to get to that net worth. And then the goal would be around 40 or so to be able to say, okay, if I want to keep working, fantastic. But if I don't, then I don't have to. And that's really what it's all about to me is the choice to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. So Hannah, how did you get your husband all on board and how how does he just have so much trust in you to to do all this? Yeah, so in the beginning, I he likes to joke that when I find a new hobby or something, I like dive right in. Like I started running and then a year and a half later I started running marathons cuz I just go full force. So I found the fire movement and was like, "Oh my gosh, we have to do this." And was basically like, you can't spend any money anymore. And we just have to save everything. And then we never have to work again. And he was not on board with that. (laughs) I approached it in probably the worst way that I could. So he was not only didn't want to do that, it was like, I'm going to do the opposite of what you want to do. Um, And so it's definitely been a learning lesson for me of how to have those conversations and really what to focus them on. Because he grew up very differently than I did. And so he works incredibly hard and is like, I work hard. I want to do what I want to do. And so over time, I think we had enough conversations that we started to talk more about, okay, what do we want our life to look like instead of how much money do we want to spend? Or, Hey, I can't go to Chipotle again because I already went yesterday and that's too much for our eating out budget. It was really like, what do we want our life to look like? And then how do we either spend or save our money based on that. And so that was really how it started to resonate with him and realizing, again, he enjoys his job, but maybe in a couple of years, I'm not going to, or, you know, we say when our uh, children are going to school, we want to be able to pick them up from school and uh, drop them off every day. And those hours don't always equate to a full-time, you know, W2 position. And so I would say it it took a year or so of being able to communicate with him the way that it resonated with him because we think about things very differently. And when I started to show him, hey, this is what I've been able to do with us saving more money, that also got him interested because he was like, oh, this isn't going to take 25 years or I don't have to eat rice and beans forever. I can live the life that I want to live. And it actually doesn't cost as much as I originally thought because maybe some of the stuff that I had in the past, it, like that doesn't do anything for me anymore. It's the time that I want. And so finding that right balance of communication and aligning our values and goals around that was really what drove it home for him. So Hannah, what do you want the future to look like? I mean, you mentioned you want flexibility and freedom. And, and if you don't want to work your job, you don't want to. But I mean, what does it look like for you? I guess maybe some of it's unknown. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it for me too. I'm such a futuristic planner that I, I like to have everything kind of teed up for what it's going to be. Um, and that doesn't always happen. Like we didn't know if we wanted children forever and now we're blessed with two and we love them and I couldn't imagine not having them. But sometimes life throws you curveballs. So I don't know exactly what I want it to be, but 
I want to be able to spend time with my kids. Um, right now, I know it's super important because they're little, but at the same time, my mentality is they're going to remember things when they're 12 a lot more than maybe when they're a year or two. And so those are a lot of the molding ages for as they get older and grow into adulthood. And so for me, it's just about the time with them and time to do what I want. I, I do enjoy my career in sales. And so maybe it turns into something where I'm helping consult or educate other people to be better in their careers. But it's really about the flexibility to me and trying not to have every last thing planned out because life changes and I want to be able to make the right choice at the right time when those things change. Yeah. So as you as you were having those conversations and think about your life and what you want it to look like and okay, here's the number I got to get to and I want 25 times my annual expenses and all the stuff we've been talking about. Did you budget along the way to get there? And do you still budget now? I do. I don't budget to a penny or, you know, hey, every last dollar is accounted for. I do more of a here are our fixed expenses that I know are going to come out every month. Here's a rough average of what I think, you know, life is going to take us for that month for the year. I don't say like December is going to be more because of Christmas presents and February won't be because it's winter and, you know, you don't do a whole lot. But I try to have a rough estimate and then kind of at the end of the year, tally things up more on the saving side. Um, because to me, we buy what we need or we do what we need to do in life. And I try not to be as crazy about it as maybe I have in the past. But to me, it's really like, what did we save and how did we accomplish those goals? And if we had a great life that year living around it, then that was success to me. Um, I used to do it to the penny and it drove my husband crazy. And so I had to relax that a little bit and realize that I don't have to do that. When did that change? I'm just curious. Yeah, um, I stopped. So I have my old spreadsheets and I think like 2017, 2018 is when I stopped doing it to the penny. Um, and it does also coincide with when I had my first child. And so maybe I just, I don't know if I got too busy. And so I was like, Hey, it's not worth it to do it to the penny because I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to. Um, I'm able to cover all my expenses and have a decent amount of income left over to save. And so I, I need to relax my crazy thinking about it. As my husband lovingly told me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's shift gears here and talk about the condo a little bit. That's about, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's about 175000 of the 725 of your net worth, equity 175. Yeah. Yep. So you lived in it for how many years and, and how come when you moved, did you decide to keep it as a rental property? Yeah, so that's probably one of the, the bummers that I made in the past is that I only lived in it for a year. I didn't know much about real estate and I didn't know the two-year rule from a capital gains perspective. So I wish I could go back uh, and live in that for two years before I rented it. But we wanted to move to just change location on where we lived to find someplace that more aligned with what I like to do from hiking and running and um, being outdoors. And we wanted to move rather quickly. And so we had a friend that rented unit in that same building. And he had actually had a couple people that applied and he obviously could only rent to one. And so he recommended our condo to some of those applicants. And so it just worked out and we've been renting it for the last almost five years now. And how many different renters have you had? 
in those five years? Um, we just started our third renter. So the first renters were there only about eight months. The next were there for about three and a half years. And then we had a renter last summer that began. Okay. So, and then any may, any big issues? I mean, I know it's a little bit of a higher end condo, right? You, you marketed about 320 grand in value. Yeah. Yep. We've had zero issues come up, which is great. Um, one of the reasons we do like the condo aspect, uh, we don't live you know, we're probably a eight hour drive from the condo. And so we wanted something that didn't have a lot of maintenance. So having an HOA can be difficult from a cost perspective and that you have to pay that every month, but it's really nice when you live far away and they can call the HOA to help them with things. Um, we've also, you know, I try to screen tenants rather well. So that way we are communicate with them that like, Hey, this is a self-managed property. And that if the light bulb goes out, this is on you guys. We're not, you know, there to fix every little thing. And we've been blessed that no major issues have happened. The only real issues that would happen would be like the water heater. Um, even the AC is more of a building AC that can fall on the HOA if there's an issue with it. And so there's not, there hasn't been any major expenses. I think the biggest thing we've had to do is fix the microwave. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's the biggest thing you got. Yeah, the, It's I been mean, great. <laughs> yeah. And does it cash flow at all? Um, It does cash flow a little bit, not a ton. So I don't include it in my net worth, but uh, we get like a hundred bucks a month is what it has. The taxes unfortunately are going up. Um, they've built a lot of more high rise condos, which is great because the value is going up, but the taxes are going up as well. So it's been more of just covering the expense or it will be more of just covering the expenses once that happens. So we'll have to see if you want to keep it or not. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So do you plan to keep it? Or I mean, I guess it's still building equity for you as that as that renter pays off your mortgage, right? And if it's zero expenses, and I mean, on one hand, that's valuable. On the other hand, you want it to cash flow, but just curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, so we've debated we ideally would like to get more involved in real estate in the coming years. Um, We got I feel lucky in that this was not bought as a rental property. It was bought as our primary residence. And then we happened to rent it out and be able to cash flow a little and cover all of our expenses for the last five years. Um, And so with taxes increasing there, it's starting to get to be where we won't have all of our expenses covered, or it would be a super tight window that if anything happened, we'd be out a little bit. Um, So one of our thinking is sell it, just, you know, take the capital gains hit. It is what it is and apply it towards our house to be able to not have a mortgage because my husband and I both agree it would be really hard to just walk away from any kind of W-2 or steady income if we did have that mortgage, regardless of what our net worth is. Um, the other option would be to to buy another property in like a 1031 exchange. It's just part of me is we have two little kids and a lot going on in our lives. And I don't know that I want to take on that added work potentially of, of having another rental property. And so we might just cut our losses and try to work towards paying off the house. So that way we could not have that expense if and when we did decide we wanted to walk away from our jobs for a while. Hannah, how would you describe your risk tolerance? Yeah. So that's interesting. I, on one hand, I feel I have a higher risk tolerance in that I am all stocks. I, you know, I don't have a a large nest egg in, in straight savings account. Um, but at the same time, real estate does, it makes me a little nervous from if you don't find a renter or you don't, you know, something goes wrong. Um, I like to, be able to build my net worth, but not have to think a ton about it and that I can sleep at night and I'm not stressing about what the next thing that's going to happen is. Um, I realize that the stock is, it's going to go down, you know, COVID hit and 
it went down almost like a blip because it's way back up rather quickly, a lot quicker than I think all of us thought it would be. Um, but I know that's going to happen again. And that's okay, because I don't need it anytime soon. For some things, I think I have a high risk tolerance, but then for others, it makes me really uncomfortable or I'm nervous. So I, I really have the set it and mentality, set it and forget it mentality around investing. And I want to just, I want to be able to sleep at night and not have to worry about things. Did you worry a lot about money? I mean, the last five, 10 years, do you still worry a lot about money or because the net worth's grown? Do you not worry as much? I think I used to worry a lot about it. And then it was almost once I started doing the math on what the actual net worth was that I didn't worry quite as much. I always thought of it as like, what's the income coming in? What's the income? And then once I realized, hey, if like, what is the absolute worst that could happen if we both lost our jobs tomorrow and couldn't find it for a year or two, like we would be completely fine. We, you know, we'd be able to pay our bills that time. We'd be able to keep an education for our kids. We wouldn't have to eat rice and beans. And so I think once I started playing out scenarios and actually looking at the numbers, it relaxed me quite a bit. Um, when I looked at it holistically instead of just the like day to day and month. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I was just curious to get your take. And, and we we talked about budgeting and when that shifted, right? Maybe when you didn't weren't as detailed with the budget. What about spending? Have you been less frugal as the net worth has grown? Has you have you started spending more? Has as the lifestyle changed in that regard? I would probably say I've started spending less. <laughs> and I I think it's interesting. I've started spending less, but I've found that I'm more relaxed and I'm a lot happier because I don't, if I want to do something that costs money, I do it. But I've found that a lot of what I want to do doesn't like, you know, going to the park on the weekend with the kids and then cooking a nice meal at home and having a beer with my husband. Like, that's something that I would want to do regardless of how much money I had. And it doesn't really cost much besides the groceries and, you know, the six pack at the the liquor store. And so once I started realizing what I actually like to do with my time, um, I also, I love to run. And I think for me, I love to run because first off, you know, I love my children, but it's the time where no one can talk to me or yell at me or ask me to do something. So it's my own little private space, but like it doesn't cost money. And so when I started to think about what I actually like to do, a lot of those things don't cost money. And so I found that I just didn't spend as much because I didn't need to when I really applied how I spend with the value that I bring to my life. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good answer. Thank you. Um, let's jump into some rapid fire questions here, and then we'll wrap up with some last words of, of mistakes and advice. So what's your household spending annually? Uh, annually, I would say monthly, it's around 9095 So, you know, 115 or so, I would say. Okay, 115. Uh, what's been your range of annual household income since you started working, let's say, your first full-time job? Yeah, so in the very beginning, uh, combined, we made about 60000 and now it's around 230 Oh, wow. Good for you guys. Switch jobs or just moving up? Um, yeah, a little bit of both. Husband's more moving up. I've you know switched some jobs, stayed in the same career field, so I was just able to gain that experience and being able to leverage at the next company. Any books or products you recommend? Anything that's helped you along the way? Budgeting tool or books? Yeah. So I think the book, The Simple Path to Wealth was really one of the most influential books from how to make my money work for me and start that investing path. 
Uh, I'm really, really into podcasts. So I always listen to your guys' podcasts. Choose Five podcast is really big for me. Bigger Pockets, both the money and the real estate podcast. Uh, and then on the more like story side, but still business is I really enjoy how I built this with Guy Raz. Um, it's really interesting to me to see the companies that have done well and kind of where they started. Uh, that you know, it's not all glamorous in the beginning, and so I've really enjoyed that podcast as well. Mm-hmm. What's been your biggest financial mistake? Biggest, I would say the the two big ones would be the condo. I wish I'd lived in it. So now, if I do end up selling, I would save significant in taxes. And then the other is just learning my investment journey earlier. You know, I had that savings mentality, but I didn't know what to do with it, and so diving into that and educating myself there earlier. Uh, would be the other area that I wish I could go back on. Yeah, awesome. So just in closing here, Hannah, what advice would you give to somebody? I know you shared a lot throughout the episode, but I mean, we recently had somebody write in and say, hey, ask your listeners if they, you know, they could give advice to their kids like at age 17, 18, 20. I mean, what would their advice be? So why don't you answer that question for us? (laughs) Yeah, I think... I'm really big on education, but not in the going to college or taking your high school classes education. I took a couple classes in college that were really life skills. And I think that helped me so much more than, you know, my econ class or my marketing classes that I took. It was how to interview and look for your first job, how to balance your checkbook when we did it back then, how to negotiate your salary. So almost learning like those life skills early on. So that's what I want to teach my kids, introduce them to different ideas and concepts around finances to learn there's not one way to do it. We all can have our different paths in life, but there's a lot of core principles out there that if you just read some of these books, listen to some of these podcasts when you're younger and take advantage of it because I I wasn't reading those when I was that age and I would love to be able to go back and do that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Jason and I always talk about it is what we need is a personal finance, required personal finance class in both high school and college. I would love some of this stuff out early. Help teach that. That's if I didn't have to work anymore, that's what I would do. (laughs) All right, Hannah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really interesting story. Everybody, that's Hannah, net worth of seven hundred and twenty-five thousand. Thanks again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.